0: Uh, do me a favor, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. If you are so inclined, you may also see this morning a bunch of men who you recognize as your elders and deacons leaving the service as quickly as possible after the service. Uh, that's because God has granted us the great privilege to go together as a team to Indianapolis this week. We're going to a conference called the Gospel Coalition. And uh, we're very excited. So pray for us. Um, um, Pray for us that we are uh, enriched, that we are built up, that we are built together as a team, and uh, that we come back ready to serve you, uh, our church family. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we will be. We will start in verse 3 this morning. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father... In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And it's to the glory of God we read these words of His this morning. Amen. If you have ever been to a musical production in the theater, you are aware that there is often an instrumental piece of music that plays at the beginning. It's called the overture. And to some, it might seem like that perfect chance to show up late and slip in uh, a couple of minutes late to your seat before the real action begins. If you're already seated in your chair, ready for the play to begin, you might be anxious, let's get through this piece of music so that the real action can happen on the stage. So why do they do a musical overture? Well, the answer is because that theme, that piece of music is absolutely foundational to the rest of the play. It introduces the people who are listening to the themes that will be foundational throughout that play. The themes that will be repeated and built upon throughout the production. Now this is the function of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. This section of scripture is an overture. It introduces to us the themes of the gospel hope that he is going to revisit and build upon in the following chapters. And so just like theatergoers who may not know any better, some of us grow a little bit impatient with this section, or even with the beginning three chapters of Ephesians, we think to ourselves, yes, I know that stuff, let's get on to the real good stuff, the stuff that's going to be apply to my life, the practical pieces of scripture. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's not a mistake that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to put this in the letter. These things are absolutely foundational to our spiritual lives. And if we don't get this stuff right, we can't get the rest of this stuff right. You see, we can be too quick to move on from reveling in the glories of salvation. We can be impatient to to answer the question, so what? What does all this mean? And see how it works itself out out in real life we want to understand the applications to my situation right now because i got stuff going on every day but i want us to stop and i want us to not neglect an opportunity to linger on god who made it all possible god is glorified in salvation and this passage tells us he's glorified by bestowing spiritual blessings on his people in Christ Jesus. Now, if you were to look at, at other letters that Paul wrote, this section represents a departure from his normal letter-writing format. Normally, what happens, Paul will introduce himself. He already did that, verses 1 and 2. And then he would move on to a prayer of intercession or thanksgiving. And that, that's going to happen. And then, and then after that, he would go to the body of the letter. So the intercession, the prayer of intercession and thanksgiving, we'll look at it in two weeks. It's in verses 15 through 23. But right here, Paul inserts, before he prays to the Ephesians, this section that we read this morning. And, and, and if you look at it in the original language, it doesn't represent it in the English, but it is one long run-on sentence. If there were any English teachers here this morning, they would be horrified. In the Greek, it's 202 words long. And scholars over the years have had a hard time identifying exactly what is going on here. What what purpose does this serve? Some have said that Paul is quoting a hymn. Others have suggested that it's a doxology or a poem or a baptismal formula that would have been declared before uh, they practiced that ordinance. But more recently, if you read scholarship, there's this consensus that has arisen that this section of Scripture, verses 3 through 14, this one long run-on sentence, can be categorized as a Jewish-style blessing. Uh, the, the name for it in Hebrew is berakah. It comes from the Hebrew word for blessing. And we see that word right there in the first verse three times, right? Blessing, blessing, blessing. Paul uses the Greek form of the word. And it's fitting, I think, that Paul would use this format, this berakah, because he's writing to a church that he planted, that he started out of the synagogue in the city of Ephesus. And so he went in and At the time, many, perhaps most of the people in the church were Jewish believers. But now it's been seven years since he left the church and what we come to find out is that the gospel has gone out and the church has expanded. And in its expansion, it now includes Greek and Gentile believers. In fact, perhaps this letter seems to assume that now the church has shifted where before it was primarily Jewish, now it might even be primarily Gentile and Greek. And so Paul addresses them, and we'll come to this point in coming weeks. Paul addresses them in this letter and he defends their inclusion in this faith that has its roots in a Jewish Messiah. And... As we read through and as we study, we might expect that as Paul is writing to a Greek audience, the Greek language has a certain style of writing. It has a distinctive rhythm and meter and rhyme and logic. But that's not present in this section. Now, that's not to say that this is a jumbled tangle of thoughts. We're going to look more closely next week at this same passage and we're going to try and determine the structure and the emphasis that he's uh, digging down on. But, but what is clear is there are themes present in this passage. Points of emphasis that Paul is making here and we're going to look at them today. But these themes are highlighted here and then carried on and built on throughout the rest of the letter. This is what I would call Paul's carefully thought out praise to God for his blessings, but it's delivered very extemporaneously, very spontaneous. And so Ephesians, like Romans, is a letter that provides a systematic explanation of salvation and its practical implications. But right here in this beginning section, Paul's consideration of that gift bursts out in this spontaneous praise to the author of it all. And I think Paul is inviting us to worship with him this morning. So we're going to look at these themes, and, and, and they include these four themes. Number one, spiritual blessings. Number two, the unique role of the Trinity. Number three, the idea of union with Christ. And number four, the worship response of believers. Let's look at God's gift of spiritual blessings First, verse 3, Paul states and then he restates the theme of this section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Three times he uses that, that word blessing or blessed. God has blessed his people and we in turn bless him. Now if you were here this summer that may sound familiar to you. You may remember that we, we had a sermon that where we talked about Psalm 103 and the uniqueness of that idea of blessing God. Remember, it starts out, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. And, and at the time, I addressed the strangeness of this idea that we would bless God. Of course He blesses us, but why would He need us to bless Him? And in response, I quoted a commentator. I'm going to put it up on the screen here for you. And he explained it this way. When the Lord blesses us, he reviews our needs and responds to them. When we bless the Lord, we review his excellencies and respond to them. That's exactly what Paul's exhortation is here. That people would review God's excellencies and respond in worship. Now note, God has not just blessed us. Look at the passage. He has given us every spiritual blessing. In Him, we lack nothing that we need. That's not to say, because some people get this very wrong, that God's blessing is equated with full bank accounts and good reports on your my chart. The blessings are spiritual as opposed to physical. That Paul points out. And we so often imagine when we hear that word blessing, we imagine those physical blessings and we're a little bit confused when those don't show up. It's not that there's not overlap between those two things, by the way. In the Old Testament, the the fathers of the Israelite nation were blessed by God and God made them very wealthy. Um, When the Israelites... Escape slavery in Egypt, part of God's rescue plan is for them to plunder the riches of Egypt, and they walked out rich, as you can imagine. Proverbs suggests that people who live according to wisdom are normally afforded material blessing. That's, that's the normal way of life. But as the page turns to the New Testament, the blessings that we are promised in Christ are more often blessings of a spiritual nature. For the people of God, after the cross, the focus shifts to eternity. The focus shifts to the completion of our salvation. These are these these spiritual blessings. And to that end, Paul, look at it, verse 3, he talks about the blessings in the heavenly places. Now, Now, this descriptor, in the heavenly places, is used by Paul only in the book of Ephesians. In none of his other letters does he use this. But here in Ephesians, he uses it five different times. Isn't that interesting? So for Paul, the heavenlies or the heavenly places are the dwelling place of God, but they are also the place and the domain where those principalities and those powers operate. Look at it in salvation, chapter 2, verse 6. You don't have to turn there unless you don't even have to turn your page. We are seated in the heavenly places. And so the church is evidence of God's wisdom overcoming those principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And then in chapter 6, you'll remember that famous passage where we are made aware of that constant spiritual warfare that is happening. It's waging, and God's ultimate victory will be where? In the heavenly places. What an incredible statement of victory. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As a result, we bless him, we declare his excellencies. And I wonder, as we think about our worship, our prayer, does that reflect his victory? Spontaneous, irrepressible, ecstatic, unending expressions of praise and adoration. Declarations of wonder at what God has done in our salvation. What he does to sustain us every day, utterances of longing and hope at what the future holds in eternity. I don't know about you, but too often my prayers um, sound like a whiny, complaining toddler. Gimme, 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 I need, I need, I need. Or um, maybe they're different, maybe they're a little bit more like, um, uh, you know, the complaining type of prayer. Maybe they're uh, something like, um, uh, God, I got this. Don't, don't worry. I'll take care of it. I can handle it. Right? Now, to be fair, I think sometimes the Psalms s- strike that tone just a little bit, that, that whiny, complaining tone. But the Psalms always come back to declaring the excellency of God. Psalms of lament and longing are usually almost always in all but, I think, one case ending with declarations of praise. Sections of lament and longing are concluded with psalms of praise declaring the excellencies of God. And I wonder if that's true for you and for me. Or maybe... Even worse than that complaining type of prayer is the fact that I forgot to pray at all times. At all. At all times with all types of prayer. That's what Paul urges when he addresses spiritual warfare in chapter 6, verse 18. Instead, like I was saying, I think to myself, God's a pretty busy guy. So if I can do something about this, uh, I don't want to bother him. And it's only when I have been unsuccessful in fixing all the things going on in my own life that I'll bring my list of needs to Him. Family, God wants to hear our prayers. But even more than that, He just wants to fellowship with us in prayer. And, 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 and we can start by recognizing his great work in salvation his awesome provision for us his continued care in our lives and i think when that happens that that dependence on him and that intimacy with him will grow and will flourish i'm really trying i'm really try- i told you i'm 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 like that whiny toddler too many times and i'm really trying to practice Gratitude, to practice the recognition of his blessings in my life. And I find that when I enumerate those things, when I start to think about God's gifts, what I find is a well of endless blessings. Every spiritual blessing. And many of those are yet to come, and so I've got to change my focus and turn my attention to the future but that's okay, because that's as believers, that's where our hope is to be in the heavenly places. I wonder if we are familiar enough with God's blessings. Paul is leading us on this journey into the depths of the knowledge of him and, and, and calling us to bask in the revelation of his blessings. That's the overall theme of this section. And the other three themes are kind of sub-themes of that, so let's look at them now. First, in the sub-theme category, is this idea of the Trinity, who is the provider of spiritual blessings. Now, you may hear the word Trinity, and you may immediately freeze up, because that can be a scary $5 word, theological, and it's intimidating to you. That's okay. Let me give this short definition This is what the Trinity is. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each an uncreated person, one in essence, equal in power and glory. In this passage, Paul very intentionally highlights each of the members of the Trinity and his role in our salvation. Look at it. The Father, in verse 4, chose us before the foundation of the world. Then on verse 5, he builds on that idea, saying that we are predestined. He chose us, he predestined us to adoption, it says, as his children. And then, of course, as we've already discussed, we are the recipients of his spiritual blessings in verses 3 and 6. Not only in our initial salvation, but also in the results of that salvation in this life and in the next life. Verse 7, Paul shifts his focus to the Son, second person of the Trinity. In Him, we have, it says, redemption through His blood and forgiveness of trespasses. Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself, is the instrument of our salvation, having died on the cross to pay the price for our sins and give us access to the forgiveness offered by God. And then in verse 10, Paul describes that special relationship that believers have with Jesus who will ultimately unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So those who place their faith in Jesus are given a preview of this ultimate reality, living in union with him now, living united with other believers now. Now more on that in just a moment. We're going to Address that in the next theme. Lastly, verse 11, it says, in him we are given an inheritance according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us, verses 7 and 8. Again, you see it? That focus on blessings given to us by God, in this case, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. Finally, the Holy Spirit. Now, for many of us, the Holy Spirit is the most unknown misunderstood member of the Trinity. But in these last couple of verses, Paul explains these two things, that verse 13, we are sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. And then verse 14, he is the guarantee of our inheritance, that same inheritance that we have through Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to live out our faith, and gives us the confidence that we are God's children. This is the outline of spiritual blessings we have in him. Him being the 3 personed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we're going to spend more time on this next week. I know that's not enough. We're going to unpack this again. We're going to pre- I'm going to preach the same passage, and we're going to look at the structure a little bit more. But Paul's words are the foundation of the gospel hope that now he's going to spin out into these first three chapters of this letter. He's going to unpack them there. And and you and I grow in our ability to live the life that God has uh, designed for us only as our understanding of God, of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Grows and deepens. So for now, I would ask you just do a little self evaluation. I wonder if your Christian walk or your worship experience is dull and uninspiring. It may be because you have a simple or stagnant understanding of God. You may be sitting here thinking, Okay, when's this going to be over? This guy's talked long enough. Don't pay attention to me. Pay attention to God through his word. There is, an, there, there is a bottomless well of understanding and, and glory and knowledge of him here. The simple is not bad, don't get me wrong. A simple understanding of God's Offer of salvation is all that's required for faith. But I'm going to say this. If that simple understanding does not deepen over time, you will have a Christian life that is immature. Paul says it this way in the fourth chapter of his letter. He says, you will be tossed to and fro by the waves, carrying every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's what Paul's going to warn you in chapter 4. But maybe you're only interested in what God can do for you. That is often the case when you first come to Christ. But, but as we grow and deepen and mature, that understanding should develop. And again, maybe you're sitting here in the weekly worship gathering and you find yourself more interested in critiquing what the preacher has to say or how the worship team does their thing or the song selection maybe you're checking your watch or scrolling through facebook or be real depending on your age right maybe you're thinking to yourself it's a good time to get ahead on this week by writing up my shopping list going to costco right after that this going to get myself a dollar 50 hot dog it's going to be great and that may be because your heart is not drawn to the beauty and the majesty of God in worship. And I am a firm believer that our minds must inform our hearts lest our worship becomes flat and flaccid. I, I think that's what Paul's going to say in Ephesians chapter 4, that our minds are the center of this whole thing. By the way, that's why we offer our equipped classes, quick plug for them, we're talking about the Trinity right here. we got a class right over there right now talking about the Trinity. And if you think to yourself, that Trinity thing, I don't get it at all. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go to the Trinity class. Pete and Len are teaching first service. It's going to be great. This is an opportunity for us to dive into the depths of God's grace and goodness in three persons. I will be the first to raise my hand and say, I've got a lot to learn. I hope you would say the same thing. Once we go on that journey, we can never, ever be the same. Now, there's a third theme in Paul's words. I alluded to it a moment ago. It's this theme of union with Christ. Union with Christ being the source of our spiritual blessings. If you've been around a while, uh, you know this. If you haven't, uh, you need to know this when you're reading the Bible. One of the ways you can understand uh, the author's emphasis and theme is to look for repeated words and phrases. And maybe you saw one as I read the passage this morning. This, there is this repeated phrase. It is in Christ or in Him or in the Beloved. And in these 11 verses, that phrase is repeated 10 different times. And this points to this larger emphasis in the book of Ephesians where that phrase, or something like it, is repeated 39 times. You think Paul wants us to pay attention to something? You better believe he wants us to pay attention to something. And you may notice the uniqueness of this phrase. You see, our blessings are not primarily through Christ. They are not primarily on Christ or by Christ. Those things may be true as well, but God's blessings come to us when we find ourselves in Christ. Let's talk about what that means for a second. Now, in theological circles, this is known as this idea of union with Christ, One scholar explains it this way, that these blessings belong to those who are within the boundaries marked out by the living Christ. So, we first have union with him when we come to faith in Jesus. You confess your sins, you declare the lordship of Jesus in your life, and you are united with him. You are born into him. And there are certainly some here today who have never experienced that once-for-all-time union with Christ. You are living on your own power. You are dependent on your own goodness. You are hoping that you can do enough that when you meet God at the gates of eternity, you can find yourself pleasing to God. My bad news for you this morning is you cannot. But the good news is that Jesus has already done everything necessary in your place. And if you unite yourself to Him, if you place your faith in Christ, if you declare your faith and allegiance to Him, you will be united with Him and you will find yourself pleasing to God for eternity. But friends, if, if, if that's something that you've already done, understand the gospel continues to work once we are saved. Union with Christ is deeper than that. We are not just united with him in his death, gaining that acquittal from our guilt. We are also united with him in his resurrection, granting us new life as well. You see, the Holy Spirit is working out in us that sanctification that is the result of our salvation. He is making us more like Jesus because we are united to him. And so in this way of our faith living itself out through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are in Christ. Now look, throughout the book of Ephesians, in Christ we are prepared and empowered for good works he has prepared for us to do. In him, the people of God are brought together as a new family, a building in which he dwells. In Jesus, we are united with people with whom we have no common interests, no background that should bring us together. In him, we have access to God. In him, we can say no to our corrupted desires and live in a way that exemplifies a new life and so much more. In Him. Now it's possible that you're sitting here today wondering why you are not experiencing the blessings of God in everyday life. Maybe you misunderstand blessings. We talked about that at the beginning. But maybe you're on the verge of giving up this whole Christianity thing. And it may be because you have not discovered what it is to be in Him you practice that checklist approach to Christianity. If I do these things, check, 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 and I don't do these things, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And your faith feels dull and oppressive. Jesus is inviting you this morning to discover a faith that has the power for holy living in him. If we come to understand this union with Christ, we can understand what the Christian life is meant to be. Now, now, if you need more information on this, um, uh, um, I have a great idea for you. Because <laughs> you want to hear more from me. In August of 2018, I preached a sermon on union in Christ. You can go to our YouTube page and you can... Look at it right there. It's from Colossians 3. But same idea. We are united with Him. We are in Christ. One last theme this morning, um, and then we'll conclude, and is this. Worship is the response to spiritual blessings. So we finish this morning where we begin. In blessing God, we recognize His excellencies and we respond to them. But Paul begins... Speaking about blessings from the Father and then he concludes with this response in verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace. And then he speaks about the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit and he concludes in verses 12 and 14 with to the praise of his glory. The passage starts with the word blessed and ends with the phrase to the praise of his glory. God is great and God is glorious, and He is worthy of our praise. That's why we respond in song. That's why we re- respond in giving. That's why we respond in service. That's why, by, why we respond by going out and reaching out to our circle. So let me ask you this this morning. What's your response to God's glory, to God's blessing? And I think it's okay for us to recognize that people respond in different ways depending on, on how God has made them. You may love singing praise choruses passionately and repeatedly with your hands raised, as our brother Pete would say, loudly, boldly, and whatever he said. He always used to say it all the time. I don't even remember that guy. Uh, some of you may just want to repeat that truth in a hymn that reflects the rich theology of the gospel. Or you may want to silently contemplate the truth contained in Scripture, the truth contained in the sermon, the truth contained in a hymn. And I've got to be honest with you. So many times when I come across a passage that declares the great majesty of God and draws my attention to the beauty of our Savior, I mean, you guys have seen me. Man, my heart gets a little tender. I get a little emotional. Some of you have made fun of me for that. Shame on you. (laughs) I've seen people who reflect on what they're learning and what they're discovering by drawing pictures or writing poems or sharing their corresponding thoughts. The importance is not how we do it. The importance is that we respond to the praise of His glory. And in this passage... Paul drives us continually deeper into the depths of riches and wisdom and a knowledge of him to the praise of his glory. There is a story told about John Madden, famous football commentator, now departed, Super Bowl winning coach of my Oakland Raiders. As a young assistant coach, he attended this coaching clinic with legendary Green Bay Packer coach Vince Lombardi. And as Madden tells it, he was quite confident, as you might expect, of his own football knowledge. But what he discovered that day is that it was an eight-hour clinic, and the entirety of the eight hours was to be spent uh, talking about one football play, the power sweep, that was made famous by Lombardi and Green Bay. And at the end of the day, Madden was astonished by what had transpired. And this is what he says, I went in there cocky, thinking I knew everything there was to know about football, and Lombardi spent eight hours talking about this one play. And I realized then that I actually know nothing about football especially for those of us who have been Christians for a long time. We are tempted to think we know all we need to know about God, so let's move on to the good stuff, the practical stuff. But his desire for us, Paul's desire for us, chapter 3 of this letter is that we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. Now listen, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I pray that that is the result of this morning. I pray that that is the result of these few weeks spent in God's words. Will you do me a favor? We're going to stand and pray together this morning. Paul concludes, stand with me. (laughs) Paul concludes these first three chapters of this letter with these words in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And I would ask you, join with me, and we're going to read these words as our closing prayer. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Father, we ask that this would be true. God, that you would get the glory. That we, would, uh, that we would, because of these words, know you in an ever-increasing, ever-deepening way. And God, that your church would be built and sustained and, and, and lit on fire for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.